Good morning. Wow, I didn't think there was, I was out there just before and I thought two thirds of the church had walked out and, and I thought, who am I going to be actually speaking to? But anyway, uh, firstly, I, I just want to say I, I, I'm just really blessed that um, you're praying for the nation, the prime minister. I go to many churches and one of the things that, that really distresses me upsets me is that I never hear, very rarely hear prayers uh, for the Prime Minister, for the nation and for, uh, you know, our country. And, you know, we need to be praying for our country. And there were people in Myanmar for generations that were praying for, uh, one lady in particular was praying for the explosion of the gospel and she used to pray on a mountainside in, up in the Chin State and now you know that broke open and now in the nation and here in Adelaide there are many many Chin people there's Chin churches here and the Chin people um, were or are the poorest in the country and so God took those that group of people and as she prayed and I met this lady once before she just a few years ago she was nearly 90 and she shared about praying and she saw a fire coming out of the Chin State from the top of the Chin State all the way uh, down into Yangon and you go into Yangon today and probably 80% of the churches have Chin pastors and so uh, they pray for the nation and it was in their prayers that we saw a partial end to the military regime as they move towards a democratic rule, which is what is happening right now. And so prayer is the key to all these things. And we may not see it in our lifetime, but we will see uh, elements of the grace and the miracle work of God through prayer. Amen. I thought I'd just share, talking about miracles, just a little bit. When I was here, now, which one did I press, the green one? Oh, you're doing it. Green one, fantastic. I want to talk to you about one on the right. I need a little, uh, like, session beforehand, IT session, you know what I'm saying? Um, my little boy, if he was here, he'd be going, oh, you've just got no idea. Yeah. Oh, first, you want to know about my ankle. I've, five people have asked me already. Uh, when I was in Myanmar, I slipped getting into a little boat and my ankle came up swollen and black and I was way, way up in the northern part of the Rakhine state where we do a lot of work now where there's, in some of those areas, they've never seen Caucasian people. So we're working in that area and I'll just show you some photos. But in that area... Um, there's huge Buddhist uh, influence and one of the prayers that we prayed, and I might have shared this previously, was that I said, Lord, there's three things I want to do in Myanmar. One is that I want to, I want to get into the Buddhist communities, I want to get into the, uh, to the government um, and I want to get into the army. Now, we've, I lecture, I do talks to army recruits now. Um, you think, well, what kind of thing do I talk about? I talk about leadership talk about influence, all those different things. But I have been, this is in a community where we work. As Wayne said, we, we get into a community through community development, which is another whole story, which we won't go into. But what it does, it opens the door. So this 
monk, Ven Vera Isaria. You can say that one. No, it's okay. He invited uh, me and our team, but me first, into his monastery. And he saw me, he said, we are equal. You are a man of God. We are equal. And for them to take somebody from the other culture, first thing, is an incredible honour. And they're so reverent towards who we are as Christ's ambassadors. If you remember when I was here last time, I talked about the journey on the road to Emmaus, how that we have and we should be the influence through which people see Jesus Christ. Because he's, he's not going to come to a church. So our model is that we plant Jesus Christ wherever we go. And groups move out of that. We, if you came to Myanmar, we would take you to places where, in a Buddhist community where we have churches, but we don't call them churches. They're just God's people meeting in fellowship. So he invited me uh, into his uh, Monastery, and he has a monastic school. And we sat and we ate together, uh, just the two of us, and we talked about many different things, many different things. And he was so he was so excited, and he said, "Would you come back and talk to to us about faithfulness? What it means to be faithful as a Christian?" And I said, "Then I said, but how long have you been here?" He said, "I've been here in this role forty three years." And I never left. And I said, I'm not sure I can actually tell you too much about faithfulness. <laughs> Amen. We can learn of these, you know, we can learn from them as well. So he's my friend. But now we have an invitation to share some of the teachings of Jesus. And here's some of the young boys we were with. And it was just amazing. He just let me go through the school and, and wherever I was. Now, this is another young monk. And this is even more amazing because he said, we, so in this community, we've done a lot of work. Grace Works has done a lot of work. And he said, I want to walk with you on the road to Emmaus. That was my journey. He said, I want to walk with you. So we spent one, over one hour walking around the village and the people were looking because nobody goes walking with a monk. doesn't happen because monks are so revered in that culture. But see, folks, here's the great thing. Jesus is sovereign. If he wants to put us into a monastic school, if he wants to win these brothers to the Lord, he will do it because he is sovereign. Because people have said, you're I've actually had Christians say to me, you're crazy, you're never going to get into the monastic space. You're never going to get to talk to monks. We're ministering to monks. I put, pop this photo up to show you something very special about miracles, about being Jesus. This is in a village in the Rakhine State, way up north. You see there's no husbands, no children, most of them being killed. These women know tragedy, um, grief, that I could not tell here in this forum what they faced and what they've seen. But look at their faces. The lady behind is Alison Swinkle. She's our sonographer lady that does our health work. 
Um, unfortunately, she was actually in Adelaide right now. Unfortunately, she couldn't be here this morning, but she promised next time I'll come and I'll, I'll get her just to share a little bit about, because some of your funds, some of your funds is influencing this village. Now, you might only give a certain amount of money, people give money, but we buy a sonography machine. But the influence of that, we cannot measure. It's saving lives. But these ladies, we pray with them, or, or Ali was praying with them, sharing with them, and there's quite a few there, but there's hundreds upon hundreds in remote villages where they've never heard about Jesus. They've never felt the love of Jesus. That's why planting Jesus is a long-term process. We've been going into these regions now for three or four years. And our country director, Peter Thien, who's actually in Adelaide this week at a conference, he, um, he was a monk. And so he got and was sovereignly saved by the grace of God and converted to Christianity. And he's opened many of these doors. But these ladies and these communities, have, as they've walked through grief and tragedy, it brought me in my journey to what, and I'm going to use this term because I think possibly many of you have been through this stage in our Christianity and it was like it's a crisis of faith somewhat. I haven't lost faith in Christ, but I struggled to actually process the level of grief that I've seen and hurt. Then I come back to our country here and I hear stories here which is just the same. The level of grief and hurt that if we put everybody's story together, this everybody has a story. What does that look like? So I was in the middle of this journey, well, still in the middle of the journey, because I discovered there's no roadmap to navigate grief and to navigate hurt, to navigate sorrow. There's no map we can just go through it. It's a journey. And it's a very, very challenging journey. And it's one that we look to the Lord. And I, my prayer, Lord, there has to be answers. Why this level of pain? Why this tragedy? As I went through that, I, d I was walking through a village and I discovered this little boy. I don't know his name. He, he had no underpants. He was part naked. Here he was on the outskirts of a refugee camp in a village that we're working in. And I walked past him and he looked up at me and I went back, sat with him. And in his left hand, he has a little, like a little rock. And, he, and I got down at his level and he began to draw. We drew pictures in the sand. And I wrote a little thing that God loves you. He wouldn't know what that means, but my prayer, God, let your love touch this little boy. And as I spent time with him, and the team had gone to another part of the, the village, I began to see Jesus again in this little boy. I will never see him again, and he's in a region where this, he quite likely will see some horrible things. But right in the middle of all this, I was reminded 
of a phrase that I heard some time ago, and I write it down, and I say it often, and I want to give it to you this morning. If you're going through a crisis, and you're asking that question, God, where are you? Blessed are those who find beautiful things in humble places where others find nothing. Every day, folks, every day, we touch something where Jesus has got his hand on it. If we watch, we wait, we observe, there are beautiful things. Because in the middle of whatever it is that we're facing, Jesus will send encouragement. He will send something for you to hold on to, just like this little boy. And as I looked at him, you can see his face. He's not sure what's going on because I was the first white skin he'd ever seen. But yet Jesus was in that meeting. And so these are the powerful things that Jesus does for us. In the middle, let me say again, whatever you are facing today, look for something, pray for something where Jesus sends a beautiful thing, whether it be a circumstance, whether it be a little boy. Because if we lose our faith, if we lose our confidence that Jesus is in everything, we will have nothing. Nothing will motivate us. And I, I, I use this illustration because I want to just move into another aspect of my message. This was only just sort of bringing things, just a story, a testimony. But when I look at Jesus, Jesus loved birth, his ministry. Compassion motivated his ministry and relationship sustained his ministry. Love birthed his ministry. What is it that motivates us? It's the love of Jesus. Everything he does is out of love. And I, I'll just take that, I can take that off now and finish, thank you. So my message this morning is, and I don't have a clock, so, oh, right there. This is such a modern church. <laughs> Remoting everything well. Well, 11.08. That's just very deep, Wayne. So I want to talk to you about, title of my message is Letters of Love. It's what I'm going to talk to you about. But before I do, before we start, I want to give her a background. One of the questions that I'm asked often when I'm travelling around is, how do you see Australia and Christianity because I live in two worlds and I come back here and I see that you know what's happening here and I thought I'll just paint a picture because I want to then move into the role of the church what does the church look like but Christianity in Australia in my observation and I talk to a lot of people we have uh, just just so you know of influence Maurice Payne, the foreign minister, was just in the Rakhine State two weeks ago. Her briefing for that visit, she had a briefing from Graceworks for that visit. Amen. So, you know, God uses wherever we, we are, whatever we do, our influence is so important. But 
Christianity in Australia now, as I've observed, is a very real threat to the order of society and the new moral order that will hold it together. Because our values and our moral values particularly have changed forever. They will never be the same again. And often things pass us by that the church doesn't even know. For example, Tasmania now have banned the gender identity of children on a birth certificate. Did you know that? So it's not male or female, it's just a baby. Because they don't want to upset this whole gender thing. Victoria have now passed laws that virtually anyone can adopt a child. Before, previously, it was a marriage, a man and a wife, but now anyone can adopt a child. These things just, now there's a list of them. And I get briefings, I get briefings, and I've had a briefing of what some of the political parties want to put forward in all of these different areas, and it's frightening. Now, whether they get up or not, is another thing. But what it does tell us is the motivation. What is the motivation for changing some of these God-given values and morals and the church as it is? Because the church now, and this is the biggest shift that I see, is that people from being disinterested in the church, people say, oh, you go to church. Well, that's okay. Off you go. Go to church. It's moved from being disinterested in church to despising church. Now, you only need to talk to the Australian Christian lobby, people in Canberra, when the whole same-sex marriage thing was going through. And they had bodyguards. They had a firebomb. And I was there in the office and talked to them. They're under such threat, simply, not they were doing anything wrong, simply standing for what they believe. So the culture has moved. There's a shift in our culture now of what and who the church is. And we, the other area that I think is, well, to me is the most, just as critical, is that there's, we can assume, we as the church, can assume that we have more impact on culture than it can have on us. Just, I'll say that again. We assume, we can assume that we can have more impact on culture than it can on us. That is really dangerous thinking. Because from where I sit, from where I come from, and I look what's in our country, and you just need to look at statistics, the amount of money that's spent on things for us. We are out of control in our country. What we have is out of control. And we have to be very careful that we're not swept up into the culture of the world. And that's what I see happening more and more and more. John, 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world. When I read this, this scripture, I, I add the word culture. Do not love the culture or the things in the culture, the world. If anyone loves the culture, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the culture, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of this culture. 
So what is God and what is not God? And the culture is passing away and the lust of it. But he who, who does the will of God abides forever. The culture. So I paint that picture for you. And I could go on and on with that topic. But the question that I want to put to you today is this. Where does the church fit? What is the church? And so when I have non-Christians asking me this question, I, I answer quite differently to, and I have a, a different perspective probably to most people of what the church is, and I'm going to share that with you. But I had a friend, dear family friend of ours, and uh, she's got a faith, nominal faith, and she wants to teach in a Christian school. And she said, where our little boy goes and, and her children go, and she's the most lovely person, but she said, I don't know what this means to be a Christian. So I went to the, I've never heard this before, this is great. I went to the bookshop to look for 101 for dummies on how to become a Christian. You know, like you've got 101 dummies for word and all that. She thought, oh, go get one for a Christian. I thought, what a novel thing. And she was genuine in that. She wanted to learn what it meant to be a Christian. So anyway, we've talked about what all that means. But what is the church? So I want to share with you four elements of what the church is and how, in my experience, the church actually fits into the world and what it looks like. So if somebody said to you, what is the church? This is how I answer. The church is four things. There's four elements to the church. The first is that it is a hospital. Now, as I go through these, I want you to journey into each of these, I call them like rooms. So we've got a hospital. The church is a hospital. So when people say, oh, everyone in the church, there's something wrong with them. Yeah, of course, because you know what the Bible says? The Bible says this. There's a lot of verses around this. Luke 4.18, he sent me to announce the release of the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set forth as delivered those who are oppressed, those who are downtrodden, bruised, crushed, and broken down by calamity. Hello? That's why everything that Jesus did was motivated by love and grace and compassion. So perhaps we might need to just take another look and go, okay, there's people in church that actually are in hospital or in recovery, or whatever it is. Maybe I need to have a little bit more grace than I once had. As a pastor, I was not a good pastor. Ty's laughing. I'm not a good pastor. Because, you know, I just told people, get your act together. <laughs> just get a job. You know, whatever you need to do, just do it. You know, and so I had to learn to be more compassionate like Pastor David Smythe. I used to look at him and go, he's a pastor. Now, I'm serious. I, I, I'm a leader. 
but I'm not a good pastor. So I had to learn that compassion. So God took me through all this journey that I shared, just some of that. But I had to learn what that means. I need more grace for people in the church because if I don't have grace for people in the church, I'm not going to have them for people who are not in the church. Very quiet today. (laughs) Very quiet. The second thing, element of church is that it is a school. It's a school. Acts 19.9, reasoning daily in the school or the lecture hall of Tyrannus, a teacher. When Jesus got out of the boat, Mark 6.34, he saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. He began to teach them. Oh, so now the church is something else. It's a school. It's where we learn stuff. We learn how to live. We learn principles of life. Time, good. Third element of the church. So it's, excuse me, it's a hospital, it's a school, it's an army. Did you know that? I have in my sub notes, I have spiritual warfare. So it's an army in the sense, well, if we go back to the Old Testament, this is Genesis 25, 26, Abimelech came out with his army. He had an army. Isaiah 36, verse 2, and the king of Assyria sent his generals to motivate the army. Out of that army, you have warfare. You have a battle going on. So some of the people in hospital may be in battle because they're getting knocked around spiritually as well as physically maybe sometimes. In Nehemiah 4.17, Nehemiah's where... Nehemiah chapter 4 is where they were rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. It's really interesting because it says this, and there's a leadership principle in here, but it says they were on the wall. Those who were rebuilding the wall, verse 17, and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and with the other holding a weapon. Every builder had his sword girded by his side, so he worked. In other words, it says they carried a brick. So in one hand, they were fighting. In the other hand, they were building. That's a leadership principle. Every leader needs to learn how to fight in spiritual warfare and how to build at the same time. If we can't do that, we won't have protection and we won't be able to stop the enemy. It's an army. It's biblical. It's an army. Spiritual warfare. That's another whole topic. Ephesians 6 verse 12 talks about the wrestle that we have with flesh and blood. Is not with flesh and blood, 
but against principalities, against powers and the rulers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness, a spiritual host of wickedness. Some of the great prayer today around Parliament, there's elements of wickedness in our Parliament. Believe me, there are elements of wickedness and some of that you see coming out in some of the legislation and proposed legislation. So where are we in that? Where are we in that? As a church. So every builder has a sword and he has a brick. That's what they had when they built the wall around Jerusalem. The, the fourth element of the church is a family. Hello? Family. Not a dysfunctional family. And you go, hello, hold on. Well, hold on. Uh, in our church, we have, you know, we have all these people uh, and they are just out there. I had a, a young pastor tell me this. He said, mate, they're just out there. You just can't get through to them. And like he's about 22, this young guy, and he's just, he's into it. A great guy. And he said, they're just out there. He said, I don't know. He said, I don't know. What do you do? And I said, well, I don't know, mate. Um, you know, there's a whole lot in that. So we'll talk about that. But it's still a family. It's actually not dysfunctional. And the members are not estranged from each other. It's a fellowship. Hello? It's a, fellow. it's a family of God. When God called you into fellowship with his son, he also called you into fellowship with the church family. You cannot separate the two. That's why when people say, well, how do you know you're saved? And I would do a whole teaching on this. What, what, how do we know somebody's actually changed if they get saved? Well, there's a whole list of things that we look for. One of them is new friends, new priorities, new values. So the friends that you went out with on a Saturday night, so I told some news recently, the ones that you go to, to the pub on a Saturday night and you get drunk and you're doing all those things, they're not your friends anymore. Oh, really? Well, you can, you, you can associate them, but they're, they're not, you're not in fellowship with them. Hello? Family. It's different. It's not as it once was. And there's a lot of verses of Scripture. These are great Bible study topics. Define the, the family of God. Psalm 68, verse 6, he sets the lonely or solitary in some versions, some translations, into the family. And where we've worked over many years, we see orphan children come into a family environment. They can, there's some children's homes, orphanages, that are very structured, the government ones, and there it is. But the Christian ones build a family so they relate into the family. So let's go through them again. Four elements. Hospital, school, 
army and family. That's what you're in. Today you might be in one of those transitions. You might be coming out of the the spiritual warfare and you've had such a hard time and you need some time out. It's okay to have time out. You might have even had a vision, as many people do, and I call it the birth of a vision and the death of a vision. What you once thought you were going to have is now dead. And you look at the church and go, where do I fit? This is what I did, God. This is how it should have worked out. Look what's happened. It's a disaster. The church, there's a hospital in the church. And you know, folks, we need to be wise. We need to be transparent. And we need to have lots of grace for each other. Because you don't know what I've been going through. I don't know what you're going through. But what I do know is that Jesus is there in the middle of it. Jesus' hand is upon your situation. So what, what is, what's the foundation? How does this look? Because everything that Jesus did, now just, just watch this for a moment and I'll finish shortly. Everything that Jesus did is motivated by love. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son and so on. So everything he did was love, love, love. But the problem I had was that was how do I tell that to people? I could love them. I could do any number of lectures on love out of the Bible. And the Bible is a love letter. It's a story about a father and a son. But one of the things that impacted me more than anything else was not actually, well, I love the Bible, I love the Word of God. Somebody gave me a book and it was called, and I'm going to read a little section. It was called Love Le- um, Letters to an Unborn Child. It was by a man called David Island who contact, contracted, contracted a very serious disease that was killing him. And he got married in the early stages of that sickness And by a miracle, his wife became pregnant, but then his life was coming to an end. And so he decided, I'm not going to see my child. I'm going to write to my child love letters, letters of life. What would you write to an unborn child about Jesus, about love? How would you describe it? This is what David did. And he writes, read the first part, to my only child yet to be born, I am your father. It's unusual for a father to write letters to his unborn child. But then you see, I am not the usual father. The circumstances of your birth are not usual. Our life together, yours and mine, won't be usual either. For I have an early appointment with death. You will be my only child and your destiny has determined that I must accomplish in words what other fathers do through piggyback rides, birthday parties and a lifetime of simple everyday signs of love. I don't have a lifetime before me and will not be able to do the familiar things fathers do for their children. Today, all I know to do is what I'm doing, writing you letters through which you may be able to know me. 
And he wrote 13 letters, and I'm going to read just this one aspect of he describes to his unborn child what love is. And as I read this, and I've read this book so many times, and this chapter in particular, I often think, I wonder if I have the kind of love that he's talking about to bring into the kingdom of God and to influence the people that I meet. And he writes about his mother, John's mother, this little boy, who was later, obviously was born and got these letters. And he did actually get to see his dad, for those of you who are going to come and ask me later. He actually did get to see his dad. But this is what he wrote. Your mother is very special. Few men know what it's like to receive appreciation for taking their wives out to dinner, when it entails what it does for us. It means that she has to dress me, shave me, brush my teeth, comb my hair, wheel me out of the house and down the steps, open the garage and put me in the car, take the pedals off the car, stand me up, sit me in the seat of the car, twist me around so that I'm comfortable, fold the wheelchair, put it in the car, go around to the other side of the car, start it up, back it out, get out of the car, pull the garage door down, get back into the car and drive off to the restaurant. And then it starts all over again. She gets out of the car and folds the wheelchair, opens the door, spins me around, stands me up, seats me in the wheelchair, pushes the pedals out, closes the door and wheels me into the restaurant, then takes the pedals off the wheelchair so I won't be uncomfortable. We sit down to have dinner and she feeds me throughout the entire meal. He had a, like a muscular dystrophy problem where his muscles weren't working anymore. And when it's over, she pays the bills, pushes the wheelchair out to the car again and reverses the same routine. When it's over, finished. With real warmth, she'll turn to me and say, Honey, thank you for taking me out to dinner. I never know quite what to answer. That's love. That's the story he told his unborn son. That's the love that I want you to have. That's what I'm telling you. For me, this changed a lot of my thinking as a leader, as a pastor. That kind of love, because I realised inherently how selfish that I am. That how I think about myself before others. If this letter... If this kind of love that he talks about in this letter, what would it look like if we brought that into the church and into the community? That kind of love. Because that's the Father's love. It's a very powerful story. But it's about us. This is what the church should look like. And this is what the church it's, going to, it's how the church is going to influence that culture because all of our culture now is taking love out of it. It's taken the grace out of it. It's taken the compassion out of it. As we prayed for our politicians, I met with a politician in federal parliament not so long ago and I said, do you understand what grace is? Do they actually understand what grace is? Do we understand what grace is? And the love that flows out of that. And the compassion for the lost. Because here's the difference. Jesus never used the word sympathy. 
It's not in the Bible. When you go to the card shop, you will never find a card that says with compassion. It's with sympathy. Now, sympathy is fine, but what that does, it means you don't have to actually do anything. You send a card, a nice letter. But Jesus was moved with compassion for the brokenness of people, which meant he actually did stuff. He actually did stuff. He actually got out of the boat. He actually healed people. He did all that. And that's what we need to do. That is what motivates us. It's compassion. The church is a church that flows with compassion to love the lost, to bring them in to the hospital, to bring them in to the family like never before, like never before. And I can say with absolute authority because I've been involved with the Foster Carers Association of Australia, like never before has there been so much pressure and so the statistics are now overwhelming of children that don't have a family here in our country. But then we have a great opportunity. Here's the positive side. We have the most wonderful opportunity to be influencers, to be Jesus. Now what I want you to take out of this when you leave is that you have the influence of Jesus Christ Today, tomorrow, the next day, whatever you do, whether it's in your family, whether it's in your workplace, wherever it is, let's be Jesus. Let's bring that kind of compassion that he wrote in his story to the little boy, to the unborn baby. Being thankful for something. She thanked him for taking her to dinner, but he actually didn't do anything. See, we, we thank, we should be thanking Jesus, but we thank Jesus for all that he's done for us, but we have actually haven't done anything, really. He went to the cross and it's his love by his grace, just like that man's wife that flowed the grace of God. And I'm on a learning curve in this with my wife, with my family, with my team. I'm learning. Amen. You want to stand with me? I pray that some of what I share touch your hearts today. You can take something away. So, Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, ask that what we've talked about today, Lord, will motivate us. Lord, that we will see see things that we've not seen before. Lord, that our eyes have opened as Job said, I've heard about you, but now I see you. Father, I pray that we see you today, that we can see your face smiling down on us as we just try to grapple with some of these things and, and move it forward. But we know, Lord, that you're greater. Your word says that you're greater that is within us, that is in the world. There's nothing that can come against us that can take us down, no matter what that is. So, Lord, we, we just raise you up and we just acknowledge that you are sovereign. 
Father, I pray for every person today here in this meeting, Lord, that they feel and sense that you love them, that you have compassion for them. And that situation, Lord, that we are facing, even in a crisis of faith, Father, send encouragement today. Send encouragement in Jesus' name. Amen.